0: Hey old brothers, this is Didact and I've got a new Domain Query episode here. Domain Query, The Evil That Men Do. And this is based on a question from a long-time reader and friend of the site, Randally6. And uh, he's asking, basically, now for the oddball request. Remember Dark Helmet from Spaceball saying, So, Lone Star, now you see that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. Why exactly is that? Our morality and common sense at cross-purposes? It just feels like the parable of the scorpion and the frog, and the frog never seems to learn that it can't trust the scorpion. Uh, well, yeah, uh, there's there's that, uh, and it really comes down to a blindness, a blind spot that good people have with respect to evil. Um, there is a problem that good people always have with respect to evil people we don't think the way evil people do that's just the truth we good people don't have that wiring in our brains it doesn't exist because in order to have that wiring you have to uh you have to essentially abandon all the things that make you human the best example that i can give you is the difference between a psychopath's brain chemistry and a normal person's brain chemistry. A psychopath does not feel emotions the way that a human brain does, a human being does. Psychopaths are very much anti-human. And if you want to see what true evil looks like, if you want to understand what a truly evil person uh, can become, just look at a psychopath because a psychopath has essentially no capacity to feel emotion the way that a human being can. They have to simulate it. It it may be an issue of brain chemistry, it may be an issue of lack of connectivity between different aspects of the brain, it may be due to abuse in childhood or having a problematic childhood, or it may well be due to spiritual reasons. I mean, there are some people that just seem to be touched by evil from birth. Now, the Christian understanding of evil is fundamentally different from every other worldview. And it's important to come back to that, which I will. It's it's such an important subject that I will come back to it. But when you look at good people, what are the kind of defining characteristics of that which is good? Well, good forgives. Good people have the capacity to forgive and uh, kind of move on from, from pain and from uh, insults and injuries that were done to them in the past. That's what makes them good, by definition almost. If you look at what we Christians regard as the ultimate source of good, God Himself, God is forgiving in a way that is impossible for the average human mind to understand. God forgives our transgressions against Him on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis, if we ask Him to do it. And that goodness is so profound and so astonishing that we really don't have any understanding of it. We can't really believe it. But if you look at that the the scene in Spaceballs from which this quote comes, it's actually a very telling scene. Lone Star is fighting, you know, uh, Dark Helmet with his Schwartz and and all that, and uh, and he tricks Lone Star into giving up his Schwartz ring and, and all the rest of it, and then just keeps laughing at him because like I can't believe you fell for that. I can't believe you, you you're so stupid. You, you you're so dumb that you keep falling for these tricks. And the reason why is because Lone Star keeps thinking, oh, well, he's defeated. He must, therefore, uh, be willing to repent and move on. And the reality is that truly evil people have no capacity to feel remorse and no capacity to uh, forgive and move on. For them, vengeance is everything. For us, vengeance leads to death. That's how we as good people see it. Now, why is it that good people these days keep forgetting the lessons of the past, keep forgetting the, the terrible death toll and the terrible suffering imposed by genuinely evil ideologies? Why is it that we keep seeing the same basic pattern repeating over and over and over again. Again, without a biblical understanding, you're not going to understand this at all. I mean, a secular mind cannot figure this out. Uh, I'm just going to make that very clear right now. A secular mind cannot understand evil. Let's be very clear about that. And the problem is that most people today are secular. They have zero understanding or very little understanding of Christian ethics. What little they do understand comes from a very warped and twisted view of the Bible, uh, which only focuses on Jesus as this sort of almost Gnostic type of mystic and philosopher. Uh, A great teacher, a great moral example, but not the Son of God. No, 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 not divine in any way. Just a good guy who walked around preaching nice things. Well, have have these people actually read the text? I've got a copy of the English Standard Version of the Bible in leather, Staring at me on my coffee table. And if I were to read the ESV Bible or any version of the Bible other than the Schofield Bible, the Passion Translation or the, uh, the Heart, whatever it's called Bible, um, these are heretical, blasphemous, you know, nonsensical versions of the Bible. If I were to read that Bible and I were to go to the seven woes ascribed to the Pharisees by Jesus, I would see a picture of Jesus cursing unrighteous people in the strongest terms possible. I mean, literally calling people, you whitewashed tombs, you empty sepulchres, you you know, brood of vipers, you hypocrites, uh, you cursed men, you who blaspheme against God, you value tradition over faith, etc., etc., going on and on. I mean, he just, he, he absolutely rails at the Pharisees. I would see, uh, in the book of, in the Gospel of Luke and in other Gospels, Jesus cursing a fig tree until it withered and died on the spot right there in front of him. Why would he do that? It's a fig tree. Why would, why would Jesus do something like that? Why would Jesus cleanse the temple not once, as is the common misconception, but twice? Why would he take up a, uh, cords and fashion them into a whip and, and, and trash the moneylenders out of the temple? Why would he do that? Because Jesus is the embodiment of all that is good and great about God. And because there is righteous fury on God's part as to our inability to learn from good. Now, why do we keep falling for the same old stupid ploy over and over again? If you take a secular worldview, you're not going to get to the answer. If you take a religious worldview, you're not going to get to the answer. Because most religious worldviews don't understand or have a definition of the concept of evil. Because they, they can't, you know, they they can't get to the point of what is good. So they can't understand what is evil. The Christian worldview is very clear about this. The problem of evil exists because man rebelled against God. God is good. He is the definition of goodness. A lot of people will read the Old Testament and say, this God is horrifying, he's he's just absolutely brutal, he condemns men, he destroys nations, he orders genocides, he sends plagues, he afflicts millions of people with horrendous diseases, uh, he orders famine and, and flood and just devastation. Yes, that's true, he does. We're, the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. The difference is, the God of the Old Testament did those things because man refused to obey. The God of the New Testament, same God, sent himself, effectively, his, his, the, the essence, the, the person of the Son, which is part of the essence of God, into the world to become part of humanity's experience, because remember, God is completely different from man. Completely. There, we as humans cannot comprehend what God is. He's so fundamentally different from us. Yet he is able to communicate with us and, and, and talk with us. And in the prelapsarian world, he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day right? So he was able to take on a form that humanity could comprehend. Why? Because back then, humanity had not sinned, it had not rebelled against him. So he was able to be in our presence without us being destroyed in the process. Ever since then, God's ability to appear in front of us is very limited, and he, can only, he cannot stand to be around sin. So he cannot appear in front of us. The problem of evil from a Christian perspective is extremely clear. As I said, we rebelled against him. He had to essentially start over, hit the reset button. Uh, and everything that he's done ever since has been to try to restore that Edenic vision of God being sovereign over the universe and willing servants helping him to govern that universe of our own free will. This is a profoundly different understanding of God than any other religion. Buddhism will tell you God is the universe. No, he's not. He's outside of the universe. He, you cannot, the thing that created the universe cannot be the universe itself. It's like, it, it doesn't make any logical sense. Hinduism is the same, has a very muddled view of God. Islam is just a blasphemy, a blasphemous heresy of Christianity. Um, you know, every other religion fails to understand this core concept of evil. So, when you have an entire species that is in rebellion against God, well, what happens when you rebel against the thing that's trying to teach you, to to put you back on the right course? You ignore the lessons of the past, every single time. It's like it's encoded in your DNA, almost. And that's exactly what you find with humanity. Humans instinctively rebel against godly authority, which means we instinctively rebel against that which is good which means we instinctively forget the lessons of the past. And one of the, I think, curses, and this is just my interpretation, I'm I'm probably uh, going against a number of established scholars and and a lot of established scholarship here, but this is just my own personal view, so don't take it too seriously. But one of the curses, I think, that came out of the the fold in in Genesis chapter uh, 4, Um, was basically this idea that, you know, man will, man will no longer be favored and man will no longer be within the eyes. Well, man will be cast out from the favor of God. But God loves us so much that he is willing to help us along the path back to him. But that sundering, that break between us and God cost us so much. I mean it's it's inconceivable to us now just how much it cost. One of the things it cost us was immortality. Humans began to taste death. And that is foreign to us, it's unnatural. We have a a real fear of death, an absolute horror of dying. Uh which is true of Christians as much as as it is of anyone else. I mean I I am terrified of dying. I'm not scared of death, actually. And that's a funny thing. I I'm not scared of that. Moment of you know that's it shuffle off this mortal coil because I know where I'm going I haven't I have a good idea of where I'm going to be maybe God's not going to want me there but okay fine at least I'll get to stand in front of him and 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 kind of offer up my reasons as to why he should let me into his kingdom I'm okay with that dying is going to be horrible and unpleasant yes agreed but death I know where I'm going. I know a lot of people who aren't that comfortable with it. They're terrified of dying and of death. They're absolutely horrified by the concept that um, that's it. It's, it's, it's over. So because of that breakage, that, that sundering between man and God, we have kind of been ingrained with this inability to learn from the lessons of the past. We constantly rebel against the one who created us, and therefore against that which is good. This is the story you find in the Bible over and over and over and over and over and bloody over again. God frees the Israelites, and within a few days, the Israelites are immediately bitching and moaning about how we would be better off in Egypt than out here in the wilderness. And God's like, guys, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure you, you know, Everything's going to be fine. Just follow my lead. Just do what I tell you. No, no, we don't. We're sick and tired of eating this manna that, fe- that fe- falls from heaven. We wish we could have other food and, and eat and drink other things. And Moses is like, you guys are just like, what is wrong with you people? I mean, the big fellow upstairs is taking care of you. He's dropping, literally dropping food out of the sky on you people. What more do you want? And so on and so forth. And then just bitching and moaning and saying, no, we don't want to do this. We don't want to go there. We don't want etc. etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, what's God supposed to do against such a stiff-necked, hard-nosed people who won't listen to him? Then you come to that's so. I mean, that's the divine aspect of it, right? Like the the the, the religious aspect of it. the the um, the 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 core issue is that we have pushed back against everything that would make us good in the first place, that would, that would eliminate the problem of evil in the first place, as if we just did what God wanted us to do of our own free will. We did not rebel against Him, but we do rebel against Him. That's the root cause. Now, why is it that we don't learn from, uh, our mistakes as well? It's partly because there is still that spark of divine essence in each of us. It comes from our sentience, our Intelligence, our knowledge. Oh, that's a cute cat. There's a cat in front of me in the in the window. Just uh, a nice black and white, uh, very athletic cat. It jumps. It can jump like six feet in the air. I've seen it. Um, just jumps straight up. Well, four feet in the air and just jumps straight up onto its uh, uh, nest thing. Anyway, um, posit- positivity for the day, if you want. Uh, anyway, so there's. Why is it that we don't learn from our mistakes? Like I said, it's built into us and it's built into us in two ways. There's the rebellion aspect, which stops us from doing what is right and therefore not doing evil. And then there's the divine aspect, that, that spark of divine essence that's in each of us. It's the connection between us and God. It's our soul, our spirit. That, that channel that leaves a pathway from God into us, you know, for God to enter our Uh, our lives, and be part of our lives, and help us along the way. That channel imbues us with the ability to forgive, and to forget, and to be gracious. And in a normal human being, that's exactly the instinct that takes over. We just want to move on. We want to finish whatever with whatever caused us pain, and we want to move on to the next part of our lives because our time on this earth is finite and there's no point in kind of being grumpy about it or, or trying to hold a grudge. And that's how most people respond to a slight or um, to something evil that happens in their lives. Most people, not everybody. But evil people don't think this way. And again, come back to the issue of the psychopath. If you look at how a psychopath thinks, A psychopath, as opposed to a sociopath, let's be very clear. A sociopath and a psychopath are two very different things. The the best uh, dichotomy between them is, that I've seen explained, is a sociopath, uh, you have a hot-blooded sociopath and a cold-blooded psychopath. And the two are similar in their inability to process human emotion in the same way, or regulate human emotion in the same way that normal people can. Sociopaths cannot regulate their emotions, psychopaths cannot feel emotions, Uh, and both sociopaths and psychopaths are uh, imbued with a sense of their own greatness, their own grandiosity. They believe that they are special and everyone else is beneath them, that they are absolutely amazing and wonderful people, and that if they were in charge, then everything would run brilliantly, because they are so much smarter, so much better looking, so much more talented, so much just better than everybody else. Well, these delusions of grandeur are exactly the way that the prince of evil thinks. The prince of this world, the ruler of this world, is an immortal, prideful, psychopathic, liar, and mass murderer. That's exactly how Christians think of him. Satan is all of those things. If you look at how evil functions, it functions exactly the way a psychopath functions. A psychopath is not capable of feeling things the way you and I do, and plots revenge in a way that can take years to mature. I mean, psychopaths have the ability to bury... Anything, any other desire, any uh, interests that they have, and just pursue revenge cold-bloodedly and single-mindedly. And there is, I wouldn't call it necessarily an intelligence, but an animalistic cunning to them that is willing to lie in wait very, very, very patiently until the moment is right to strike. And then it will strike hard and strike home. This is the fundamental difference between evil people and good people. As I said, good people can move on, evil people can't. So, good people lose out simply by virtue of not sticking it out, not not playing the game for long enough, for not um, kind of seeing things through to the end, because our instinct is, as good people, to forgive and move on. And there are times when that is not the right response even christians have a limit to how often we can forgive and should forgive the bible is very clear about this Uh, the teacher how many times should i forgive my brother if he sins against me should i forgive him seven times i say i say unto you not merely seven times but seven times seven you should forgive your brother uh if you if your brother wrongs you first seek out an agreement between yourself and your brother in private uh, then seek out you know um, seek out mediation arbitration between the your your elder uh, and your brother if he still refuses to repent bring him before the council and let him be judged and let him ask for forgiveness from them if he still refuses to repent cast him out yeah you know, that's what I mean, I'm butchering Scripture, obviously, but that's what Jesus said, more or less. There is a limit to how much we must forgive. There is a limit to how much God will forgive. And that is the lesson we keep forgetting in the modern day, because, number one, we've ignored Scripture. I mean, we, most of us don't... Most Christians don't live by Scripture. Most Christians don't understand Scripture, uh, because they're only nominal Christians. They're, you know, lukewarm, really, and, again... Christ says himself in Revelation, uh, be, not, be either hot or cold unto me, but do not be lukewarm, for I will spit you out. Um, when you look at what society has become today, we have taken all that we consider to be nice about Christianity and abandoned all that we consider to be inconvenient or ugly. And this was a mistake. It's a very big mistake. Because there are people who are irredeemably corrupt. And there are people who cannot be healed or fixed. There are people who are so profoundly evil that they are, that the rest of society is better off just casting them out. This is the mistake, the fallacy that we make in all of our dealings in, with liberal policies, liberal thinking. There is a time for forgiveness and there is a time for spanking. And God makes that really clear throughout the Bible. He's going to spank you when you do something stupid and something wrong in direct contravention of his orders. And you're not going to like the spanking, but that's kind of the point. You have to learn from your mistakes. Why don't we learn from our mistakes? Because we don't want to learn from our mistakes because we keep rebelling against him and because we ignore what he actually says about learning from our mistakes. So we try to be indulgent and nice to people and uh, we try to basically see the better angels of their nature. And this comes down really to a fundamental difference of opinion about what man really is. This is uh, best explicated in Thomas Sowell's A Conflict of Visions. a phenomenal book. Very, very important to read to understand this, this, this dichotomy between, it's not left and right, but this dichotomy between realists and idealists. The realists look at mankind as a fallen and flawed creature, a broken, wretched, pitiful creature that nonetheless has an innate nobility and has seriously sinful and dangerous aspects of his personality, which the rest of mankind must be shielded from. The, that is the view of men like Locke, Hobbes, and uh, other sort of philosophers of that bent. I wouldn't necessarily say Enlightenment-era philosophers, because there's more to it than that, but this, is, this was the dominant view of man as a creature for a very, very long time. And it's, a, it's actually a biblical view of mankind. On the other end of the scale you have Rousseau, with his idealized noble savage idea, this idea that uh, man in his natural state will always do what is good and what is right and is pristine and the laws of society shackle him. Well, guess what happens when you abandon the biblical view of mankind and you go towards the idealized view of mankind, because the idealized view has nothing to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with truth, nothing to do with human nature, it has everything to do with how man sees himself. Guess which view is dominant today in most liberal um, ways of thinking about the world? It's the Rousseau view. It's that view of man as as perfectible, as um, as perfect in his original state and perfectible in his modern state. Well, inevitably, if you view man as perfectible, you're going to adopt policies and ideas that try to perfect him in gentle ways that that aren't you know that aren't mean or unkind or harsh. This is where you get idiotic ideas like uh, no bail, you know, uh, for robbery or or, or um, what's it called? Oh, no bail. Um, basically, like what uh, George Gascon has done in um, I think Los Angeles, is it? Uh, or San Francisco I forget exactly where but like very very liberal district attorney who basically says uh, if you steal up to $950 from a store well we're not going to prosecute you under a felony it's a misdemeanor uh, you can rack up as many misdemeanors as you want you're not going to go to prison so of course you know, People being people responding rationally to incentives will walk into a shopping mall and, and say, okay, well, let me add up the item here and here and here. And it comes down to, oh, 900 bucks. I can take all this stuff and just leave uh, because nobody's going to do anything. Well, and inevitably you get a lot of, guess what, black kids doing that. I mean, what do you expect, right? Like This is what they're going to do in the absence of certifiable, uh, uh, credible punishment. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's human nature. That's what's going to happen. And it comes from this view that man can be perfected. It's ridiculous, it's stupid, but it's there. And it comes, again, it's rooted in rebellion against God. That view of man comes from the idea that man can be as God's. Genesis chapter 3, it's right there in black and white. What is the result of this worldview? Well, it creates the most hideous and disgusting ideologies ever seen. Communism comes from the view that man is perfectible. Nazism, fascism comes from the same view. If you actually look at communism and fascism side by side, they're incredibly similar ideologies. The The real history of fascism and communism is of basically sisters, kind of breaking off and getting very very angry with each other because they're bitching about who gets who's the better looking and being deeply jealous of each other as as um as a uh, two actresses there were two uh two two um was it the the Havlon sisters? I forget. Um but there were uh there were, there were two sisters in Hollywood who were like uh infamous for their hatred of each other and their, their, their sibling rivalries. Um, which I, I never quite understood. Um, I think, was it Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine? I, I, I can't remember. But they absolutely, um, they absolutely hated each other. And they, you know, they were rivals from the very earliest age. Well, that's exactly what communism and fascism were. Twin sisters or or sisters born of the same kind of parents and with a deeply uneasy relationship with each other. But really, they come from the same roots. Communism says that you split people along lines of class. Fascism says you split people along lines of nation. But really, it's the same basic ideology. That's why they hated each other so much. So, they both come from the same place and they both result in the same things. I mean, they, they both are of this view that man can be perfected and trained into doing what you want him to do. And we come to the modern day, we look at globalism, it's the same philosophy, it's the exact same idea. It's the same exact notion that we've had over and over and over and over again throughout history that man can do whatever he wants without consequences, without um, punishments, and that man can fix himself. not possible. Man can't fix himself. Man is too broken, too corrupt, too uh, su- uh, susceptible to out- outside influences to be of any use whatsoever in fixing himself. Only a force outside of man that is not corrupt, that is not broken, not evil, not twisted in any way, can fix mankind. And that force, we Christians understand, to be God, our God, Jesus Christ. And the person of Jesus Christ, the person of the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, all in the essence of God, that's what we understand to be the thing or the 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 prime mover that will heal the world and stop sin. And it's going to happen eventually, it's going to happen in God's own time. We don't know the plan, we don't know what's going to happen or how it's going to... Well, we know how it's going to happen, we don't know when it's going to happen. Um, we just know that it's coming. So, that I think is the answer. I mean, why you know, Why is it that, um, as Mark Anthony said in uh, Julius Caesar, it's uh, Act 3, Scene 2, he said, uh, I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often terred with their bones. Uh, Well, that's why. Evil lives on because good is stupid, and good is stupid because, number one, we rebel against that which is truly good so we ignore the lessons that good is trying to teach us. Number two, because we rebel against that which is good and we are obstinate in our attempts to understand those lessons, we instinctively try to fix ourselves and we fail every single time. And number three, We, in, in attempting to fix ourselves, we make the problems worse because we ignore the very harsh lessons of the past and we ignore the things that are unpleasant about good. Because the thing, remember, the thing to understand is just because God is good, God is love, that doesn't mean he's not going to spank you when you need it your father loves you there's no doubt about that i mean if you come from a functional healthy family your father loves you but a good father is not above disciplining his children he has to discipline them he has to it's it's part of his function as a father he has to civilize his children and bring them up the right way and sometimes that means uh sitting them down reading the right act Sometimes, unfortunately, it means, you know, taking out the, uh, taking them out to the woodshed and, and really thrashing them. I mean, I hope we don't have to do that as, as modern parents, but there are times when the, I'm not justifying spanking. I'm not, because I was spanked a lot as a kid and I hated it. And, uh, I think it did quite a bit of damage but I'm not saying that you should just throw it out of the, the toolbox, because there's a great scene in Starship Troopers, uh, the book, not the movie, the book, in which uh, Jean V. Dubois is talking about, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dubois is talking about uh, the use of physical pain as a very powerful learning tool. Well, it is a very powerful learning tool, that's a fact. And he talks about how this notion, that, you know, spanking your child is... Um, again, I'm not defending it. I don't like it. I don't view it as a good thing, but in this in, in this passage in the book he's saying, use of physical pain, flogging, um, spanking, whatever, uh, is a very powerful learning instrument. You learn very quickly not to do that again, and it has to be reserved for the most serious of infractions, which in the book it is. It Flogging Rico Johnny Rico is flogged five times. Uh, I mean, he's uh, he's he, get, he receives five lashes of the whip, uh, administrative punishment, five lashes, um, and as he says, the scars, the lessons stayed with him because of the scars on his back. You know, it it works. It, believe me, it works. Uh, what you shouldn't be doing as a parent is just thrashing your kid for the most minor infractions uh, which is unfortunately the resort of way too many parents and that's 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 actually lazy parenting um, but that's just my view on it you know uh, you don't have to take that seriously So anyway that's those are the three factors which I think lead into it number one rebellion against God, forgetting what uh, good is number two trying to recreate that which is good after the rebellion by using man-made means and number three, Refusing to understand that good also implies discipline and it implies that you need to be restrained and self-disciplined and sometimes that discipline will come from outside. You're not going to like it and you just have to accept it. Uh, so that's it from me. I hope that uh, somewhat answers the question. I know it's a little bit roundabout way of doing it, but uh, there's a lot to unpack because questions of good and evil are always complex. Uh, this has been Domain Query. The Evil That Men Do, and this is Didact, over and out.